the force will be with you always. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. TGIF, everybody. Hi, I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour. Looking forward to what George Beam, our special guest. It's been a little while since we talked to our pop culture slash politics slash publishing. Maven has to say he's got all your peas. And we're going to enjoy talking to him so much right after we say hello to bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. How are you today, sir? Doing very well. I don't have as many slashes in my title or description, but I, I can work on that. You That's... could. You could probably come up with about 20 slashes. <laughs> well, first of all, are you a fan of Slash? I am, actually. <laughs> Who wouldn't be, though, really? <laughs> Well, this is a good time for us. Uh, I set up this interview just yesterday, and uh, it wasn't through a cancellation. We didn't have somebody booked here for today. So I got on the phone to George Beam, and I asked him if he'd come on. Fortunately, he has time available, and he said something very nice. He said that Susanna and I are like a couple of people sitting with him under a Florida palm tree, enjoying a drink, just kicking back, maybe over a beer and talking about issues of the day. I think we'll take that. I think we will take that. This is George's 14th visit with us. We're in our 15th year on air, and that's his 14th visit. So he's he's averaging about one a year with us. Let me give him his mad props, as we like to say, but they're perhaps a bit less mad than they ought to be because this is the brief version so that we can talk to our friend George Beam we love that you folks are joining all this because there's so much that is pertinent to issues and to well-known people of our times. George Beam is a New York Times best-selling author that specializes in books about business and popular culture. His books have been published in more than 20 countries and in every major language. He lives in Southeast Virginia. So George Beam, we, once again, we meet on the radio. Glad to have you with us. Well, the force is certainly strong with you guys. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> that's one that's easy to interpret. There's a, there is a whole, when it comes to Star Wars, Star Trek, of course, there is a whole pantheon of characters, George, but there's also a lexicon. There are so many, maybe countless points of reference that two people who are enthusiastic about either or both of those franchises can jump into a conversation readily without any notice and are going to understand each other with a common reference. Exactly so. You know, I think George Lucas, it was interesting because when he did Star Wars, he had no idea what was going to happen. He just hoped that the movie would do okay. And he had no idea that he had set this giant um, entertainment franchise into operation that now has lasted for decades. It's amazing. You know, now the, now that uh, kids are growing up and our kids are growing up and what have you, you know, it's a whole new generation that's going back and enjoying star Wars. It's amazing. It's a fun movie. I remember seeing it for the first time in the movie theater, quite blown away. <laughs> I was in, and George, we're going to get you to weigh in about your first experience with that uh, storied franchise. I remember standing out in fairly hot weather in Anaheim, California with my buddy who worked at Disneyland. So I was all about the fantasy that night. 
we were standing out there and while we waited in a long line with our tickets or waiting to buy our tickets actually and hoping that they would still there would still be seats by the time we got up to the window which there was fortunately but i remember that a member of the university of indiana marching band was going through his percussion routine practicing to make good use of his time in summer before fall came along and he would need to perform. Then he was going through the whole routine. And I thought, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that before. And we hadn't even gotten to the movie. Mm, yeah. I, I, I mean, I remember my experience as well. I was fortunately sitting with a friend of mine named Tim Kirk, an artist, and he is uh, now a retired Disney Imagineer. And ah. uh, sit there and, and, uh, enjoy the movie and then afterward talk to the movie uh, with him about it was quite an experience and uh, and he went on to work for i think 20 years at uh, at disney but the movie changed, movie changed everything i mean science fiction just exploded after that and um and even now we still have the reverberations of the impact that lucas has done and now of course you can go to disney world soon i think next year they're going to open up the new uh, environment where you can go to a hotel and they literally put you into this hotel that the other guests on the property can't go to. You just have to check into that hotel and it's got these widescreen TVs and views of vistas of space scenes and whatnot. You know, you can do that without, without having to pay the, the uh, quarter million dollars to go on Virgin Galactic for one minute. Uh, and space. more about that in a moment there, but at this, is it a Star Wars themed hotel? Yes, it is. That's exactly and what I want to know is, do they have a bar? I would think so. <laughs> and, uh, and then they will have people, you know, in costume walking by, taking care of their Star Wars business. You can stop and talk to them and whatnot. So it's, it's very much a, an immersive environment. It ought to be interesting. When I was in college, in my last year of college, with all of my um, necessary courses taken, I had a little free time. And one of the courses that I chose in my senior year was science fiction. I was an English major wow. and I chose science fiction. When I went to the bookstore and said, you know, this is my class, what do I need? They gave me 18 books and wow. we were on the, we were on the quarter system. So we read 18 books in nine weeks and they were, you could just devour them so easily. Uh, wonderful, fun, fun books. But one of the things that I were, noticed were they about- science fiction books? All science fiction. Oh, all 18 okay. science fiction books. This was the science fiction genre. Mm -hmm. When Star Wars came along, the thing that uh, I think was really, really attractive about it was that in a lot of the- science fiction that I was reading, novels and stories, they weren't all fun and upbeat. These were about, you know, aliens that were going to eat us and, you know, different kinds of weird situations where people get lost in other dimensions and can't get home. And like, it was all a little dark and negative. Mm -hmm. So when Star Wars came along and we're talking about the bar scene, you could go in there and laugh and have fun, even mm. though there was a conflict going on that you had to be aware of. 
it was still a great visual fun movie and and when gary and i will occasionally uh, see science fiction uh, on saturday nights on sven Gulli, it's never fun like star wars those science fiction things are you know aliens from another planet they come they landed we have to kill them you know how are we going to do it is it going to be you know electricity or gas or you know blow them up or what are we going to do so it was always this really negative stuff star wars made science fiction fun don't well, you think it, yeah it did and it really drew its inspiration from pulp fiction from the 30s and 40s and you know i view star wars as being like indiana jones in space it's just a fun family movie and now i think we're just being overwhelmed with dystopian science fiction movies where everything's uh a crisis where there's no water, there's no this, there's no that. Uh, aliens are always hostile. Uh, you know, this is why E.T. did so well, because it showed the humanity of this little creature that, uh, you know, resonated with us personally and resonated with children. And that's really what movies should all be about. It should be about experiences. Well, there was a lot of fear that went into that early science fiction. Like, what if the Martians come? What if the Martians come and take over our planet? What if the Martians come and eat us? What if the Martians come and, and you know, suddenly our, our weapons don't work against them? I think the science fiction was really coming from a very big fear place. E.T. comes along and it's a big lovable place. Well, you know, science fiction just encompasses a broad range of approaches and and you probably had more than your share of the dystopian stuff. There's a lot of positive stuff in science fiction. Um, you know, Heinlein, Robert Heinlein, very positive. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. It's not, uh, you know, there's really something for everyone. But I think now the current um, generation of readers uh, are really looking more on the dark side. And I think that reflects the time that we're in. I mean, we're in a, you know, everything right now feels like uh, Stephen King's A Stand you know, with the super flu and, and people dying of it. And uh, mm. one thing to read about it in Stephen King's fiction is quite another to, to see half of the population not being vaccinated uh, and infecting other people. You know, so it's, yeah. it's not, uh, it's, it's, it reflects a society. It really does. It reflects a society. And if we get a bit more granular about it, George, I do not understand. I, I am willing to claim I do not understand the motive of someone who would verbally assault and really in insulting terms, questioning even their, their sexuality, because in a supermarket, one person is wearing a mask, the other is not wearing a mask. There's verbal abuse going on. And the one receiving this abuse is the one wearing the mask. Well, you know, we live now in this culture of rude, the free range rude. And um, it's not just masks, it's everything. Everybody is on edge. You know, we just found out about a friend of ours and she was doing 35 miles an hour down the road, trucker behind her, and he was upset that she wasn't speeding up. Well, the speed limit was posted as 35. He tracked her down, he followed her to the store, got out of the store, reached into the back of his truck and pulled out a shotgun and aimed it at her. And all she was doing was driving the speed limit. And so she rushed into the store and, uh, and then a man came out, uh, the store owner, and then he, he, the man finally, the trucker with the shotgun left. 
But this is the kind of confrontation that you're seeing now, because I, I believe that Donald Trump really has emboldened this kind of aberrant antisocial behavior. You know, I, I really don't want to get into a long discussion about Donald Trump. Uh, I did a quote book on him uh, the year after he uh, nom- the year after he wanted he put up his platform. But the thing is that that when you go out now, you just have a sense of danger. You yes. just don't really feel safe anymore because if it's not a verbal confrontation, then it could be a physical one. And uh, if you're a minority, uh, you know, for instance, they've had cases where especially Asian Americans have been targeted. Uh, you just feel it. You just don't feel safe in your own country anymore. Boy, isn't that the truth? So some people with the means are escaping the planet, if only for a few minutes. Let's get into that, George. That was my intended softball opening question, but we got involved with these other lovely topics. So now, now I'll take my opportunity to bring it up. Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, taking to the skies, and they took people with them. In the case of uh, Jeff Bezos, without a pilot, <laughs> we just, we're just going to go up there and say hello to God and come back down after about three to four minutes of weightlessness. What is your assessment of the ability of these esteemed gentlemen to do what they did and how it fits in to an earthbound culture that nevertheless seeks the skies and has for a long time? Well, I think it really is a, uh, a giant leap for mankind. I mean, at some point we're going to have to, move off the planet and colonize other planets. And that's one of the things that science fiction has always been big, big about um, is to go, go out there and explore the world. I mean, it's not a Star Trek kind of thing where you go out and, you know, you meet the Klingons or you meet the Ferengi or what have you, because they all kind of look like us. But um, there's a need that people have to explore their world. And until we understand where our place is in the universe, uh, we're not going to know really who we are and where we came from. I mean, we know we're all stardust, and that's that's part of our code. But um, when these guys, you know, have the money and the imagination and the vision to go into space, it now opens a door because it means that space is just not for um, astronauts. And, and and fighter pilots and what have you, it's for it's going to be for everyone. So I can see a point in time, uh, and it'll be sooner as opposed to later, that you'll see the prices come down to a point where people will say, gee, you know, I just want to get off the planet and have this sense of wonder. Because when people do that, they look at the earth, and it looks like this beautiful ball, uh, beautiful blue marble, and they all say the same thing. They say, you know, it makes, it makes me realize that we are all the same people. We all come from this one planet. No matter what our differences are, uh, we're all the same. And so that that notion of unity, I think, is, is an important message today because right now we really live in a society that's, that's so uh, divided in many ways. You can't see the demarcations of the various countries either from up there, which is pretty interesting because you you might see the continent, but you don't see the lines separating us from Canada or Mexico. And mm-hmm. so, uh, yes, when you talk about that unity, I think that, that people who are involved in uh, 
astronomy really have that sense even more than the average person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it's interesting, the science fiction writers have always said that if we want to unite the whole world, what we need is a common enemy. So, for instance, if you had some uh, technological power from another planet come here and they had the ability to destroy, destroy us, uh, that would bring all the countries together. Everybody would put aside their petty differences and uh, work toward a common cause of defending the planet. So, you know, I don't think we're ever going to get to that point, but uh, it's a nice notion. Well, that was hinted at recently when the uh, military came out with the, um, the video of the UFOs that they had taken that they were releasing. And we've had several shows about this already. But what we concluded was at least the uh, news reporting was not making fun of it. And so that is a, that's a step in a completely different direction rather than people putting on little tinfoil hats. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they are saying, you know, well, there's something in the skies and we don't know exactly where it's from or what it is. And so that, that door is beginning to creak open with a couple little creaking noises mm -hmm. as we look to see, are we alone? And is there somebody visiting us? Yeah. And, you know, when Steven Spielberg did um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, he said that he was studying on his own this phenomenon of UFOs. And he concluded that most of them can be explained. But what concerned him was the small percentage of unexplainable phenomena. Phenomena, And, and I agree. Uh, if it can be explained and we can say, you know, this looks like a drone. It, it was obviously created by another country. I mean, what, what we saw in those videos with the pill-shaped objects looked to me like some sort of drone because they can maneuver fast. They can go on, you know, I think one of them went under the water at some point, some other videos. Um, but still, we don't know. We just don't know. And um, now we've got cameras everywhere. Everybody's got a camera. So you would think that there would be more photos or more videos, but we really haven't seen that. I mean, the, the planes that the, the F-18 Super Hornets that were off the coast of California uh, were the ones that recorded this. But the interesting thing is that these uh, UFOs, or I think the military has another term for it now, um, look at this and and they say, well, you know, we chased it, we filmed it, but they didn't attack us. That would be a whole different ballgame. Right, right. UAPs is the new term, unidentified aerial phenomenon. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I think if I were from another planet and I was looking here, I'd go, oh, forget it. I'm going somewhere nice. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. I mean, where the and, people you know, are nicer. <laughs> you can also, and you can also have unidentified underwater phenomenon. So, right, that's a possibility too. So, UFO to me just seems like a, 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 a like the same thing with the other one. It, it's not not necessarily going to be an aerial thing at all. For all we know, they might be having submersed vehicles that we can't even see. Yeah. Well, and, and I was going to say, um, you know, as far as the land mass goes, I think we have covered most of it. But as far as the underwater, we've covered very little of it. Exactly. And, and so, so there's there's a lot of interesting things going on in the oceans that we have not yet identified. Yeah, I mean, water is most of the planet and it gives them a lot of places to hide. 
and we don't and we haven't explored but a fraction of it so that if, I were an alien, if i were an alien i'd be underwater <laughs> yeah good place to be <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that subject has fascinated me since I was a kid, and I'm a baby boomer, so it stands to reason. Here's an anecdote: my cousin was in the Navy back in 1958, and he told me, as I brought up the subject of UFOs, which also fascinated him, that he overheard chatter. I don't know in what position he was at the time because he spent time out at sea when the, there was a uh, problem in Lebanon back then. And he said that he heard chatter about something seen in the skies that was unidentified and that was, in today's terminology, performing aerodynamically impossible maneuvers for a craft built on Earth. It was doing something that the, the radar operator, and he had, a, he had a visual on it, simply could not explain. Nothing we could put in the sky, nor the Russians at that time could put in the sky, could do the things that they were seeing. And they had a radar. They painted a target, mm -hmm. as they say. And as a result, there, my cousin was more than a little interested in getting the story. So he found this guy in a bar. And he walks in. And he just starts to ask about it. And when it was clear what he was delving into, the radar operator said, you didn't hear anything. And he goes, no, 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 I heard it. You were there. And, and this is what you said. And he goes, stop. You didn't hear anything. I'll never tell you. Forget about it. And so my cousin just took his leave and went and had a drink in another corner of the bar. And that seems to be the way it goes. When I was in one of my first jobs in radio back in 2005, I fielded a call when this was the subject of the hour during an overnight show. And a, um, a fellow Navy pilot there called and he didn't want to go on air, but he said, you know, we saw things when I was in the Navy as a pilot, we had guys, including myself, that saw things up there. We didn't know what to make of it. It was truly strange, but we all knew that to report it would be his words, a career killer. Yeah. Well, the, the difference now is that there have been a preponderance of professionals that are pilots, commercial pilots, military pilots, uh, military officers, people that are trained uh, to look for anomalies and stuff like this. And they, when they report it, there's a credibility that's there, that isn't there when, for instance, it's some guy in Roswell walking around with a tinfoil hat. Um, so because of that now, and recently there's been a report that the government issued, and it basically said, well, we still don't know what's going on out there, but we are going to start taking it seriously. So after Project Blue Book, which pretty much discounted the, the whole thing of UFOs, uh, after all of these years now, they are the military is, is revisiting this because we just can't deny that there's something that we can't explain and therefore we have to investigate. And that is integrity. I am I just welcome it. I think it is the thing to do. And we're not leading the pack, I must say. Great Britain, the UK, was definitely among the first to do it. Also France, Belgium. Brazil. And Brazil. They've been very forthcoming. So I'm glad to see this going on around the world instead of simply it being a matter of, well, if the president of the United States doesn't come out and say it, 
flatly declaring that, yes, they're here. We can't defend against them. Everybody go wear a tinfoil hat, whatever the president would say. It seems like the rest of the world counts on that to verify anything. Well, that's true. I mean, when the United States put, puts its seal of approval on something, then people sit up and pay attention. Um, but the fact is that that we live in a world full of mysteries, and this is one big mystery because the big question that we want answered is, are we alone? And we either are or we aren't. And uh, it's something that mankind would like to know. But the first step is actually admitting that there is something out there that can't be explained and then starting to investigate it in a rigorous scientific fashion. And so scientists are saying, well, uh, you know, we want some sort of proof. We just don't want uh, sightings or, or photographs or video that's, that's blurry. We need something tangible. And uh, the day that that happens, uh, then our world has changed because we now know that we live in a very large universe and uh, we don't know what's out there. Why don't we go ahead and take our break? We have other topics to take up. Uh, it's great to look at the skies, but there are earthly subjects of concern. And we have such a panoply of topics from which to choose whenever George Bean joins us on air to our delight. We'll get into some of those things on the other side of a short break. We're Manson Mitchell. George Beam is with us. You're here with us. It's a good Friday and a good start to the weekend. We will be right back. Staying connected with Gary Manson and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to MansonMitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Manson Mitchell show page at Facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. No matter who we are or where we come from, we all experience difficulties in life. Military veterans know that sometimes it takes strength and determination to make it through. Whether it's obvious physical challenges or struggles on the inside, it takes strength to ask for help when you need it. I knew that I had to get support, not just for me, but for the sake of my wife and kids. Talking about it has helped me feel more like myself again. Honestly, it was hard to open up at first, but it's changed my life for the better. Learn how veterans like us have reached out for help and hear stories of strength and recovery at maketheconnection.net. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. 
we're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Nance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. Alternative Talk, 1150 on AM, 98.9 HD3 on HD, 1150kknw.com on the web. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest for his 14th visit, George Beam. His last name is spelled B-E-A-H-M. George, if people would like to find out more about you or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Well, I do have a website with my name on it, but I just haven't had time to uh, to build it, to construct it. So the best thing really is to go to Amazon and find one of my books because there's so many on different subjects. And that usually is, is the best way to find out something about me. Uh, I'm not on social media. I don't, con- I don't contact message boards and leave messages. I feel like a writer's job is to be invisible. And uh, when you become known, and people can see you on the street and they recognize you, then suddenly it, it, it makes your job so much harder. Um, Stephen King, whom I've, whom I've written about extensively, uh, has often complained about the fact that, you know, now that he's so well recognized, literally probably around the world, uh, it's much like George R.R. R. Martin, who complained about the same thing, that he'd go overseas. And, you know, it was hard to find a little privacy. Uh, though when George went to see his publisher uh, a couple of years ago, uh, the guard wanted to see some ID because he had no idea who George Martin was. Oh, funny. Oh, wouldn't, let him, funny. wouldn't let him in until he saw some ID. In, in our little collection here of George Beam books, you do write a, about a variety of things. I don't know that you can name all of them, but name a few so people get the idea of some of the things that you're interested in. Definitely, definitely Stephen King. And who else have you written about? And what else have you written about? Well, really, it's it's first, it's all been nonfiction, and that's going to change because I'm working on some novels now. And um, I've done a lot of books about popular culture because I find that fascinating. Uh, I've written a lot about fantasy writers. Uh, so I've written about Anne Rice. I've written about, uh, let's see, also uh, Patricia Cornwell, uh, Tolkien, you know, all of those uh, really popular writers, uh, J.K. Rowling. And then I've done a series of business books, which basically collect inspirational quotes, uh, including a Steve Jobs quote book, which I was really happy with. So it's been, you know, quote books and books on popular culture. We and have the Steve Jobs book here, and I really enjoy that book. We, we really liked reading that. So, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, and also you did a, a Star Wars book about the military aspect of it. Yes. So yeah, uh, I was in the military for many years uh, in the army, and um, I did a book called The Military Science of Star Wars because I wanted to show what actually was realistic and what wasn't. And I understand that, you know, it's Star Wars is Star Wars. 
and the story is what's going to drive the engine of what they put in there. Right. Uh, but it's fun to look at it and say, you know, in the real world, this this would happen or this wouldn't happen. And mm-hmm. uh, fortunately, you know, the last to get a sense of all of that, the last uh, mission that I had was working with a F-16 fighter squadron in New Mexico and flying with them. And you really get a sense of what it's like to be in a pilot's environment because Star Wars is very much about outer space and, and what have you. And, um, and you get a sense that, that um, you know, once you get in any kind of aircraft, uh, it's a contain- completely self-contained world and it's a dangerous world because anything can happen. Right. Uh, you know, it reminded me very much of, of the uh, two recent um, launches from, you know, with Branson, Virgin Galactic, and then Jeff Zabo, uh, Jeff Bezos. It seems like you know it's it's routine, and people got used to the space program until the Challenger b- blew up. Yes, um, and it's always dangerous. I mean, yeah, uh, you know, I can see you know any number of things can go wrong. I mean, and then when they go wrong, it, they go spectacularly wrong, uh, as yeah. as with Apollo thirteen. You know, they were just really fortunate they were able to work the problem and get back to earth because uh, there's so many more things that could have happened from that point that would have made it impossible. Yes, that's absolutely true. When I was um, in another relationship. uh, Far, far away. That's right. In a galaxy (laughs) far, far away. I was in another relationship back in 1981. And it so happened that the father of the lady with whom I was involved happened to have worked on the fuel lines of the Saturn V rocket. Mm. And he was telling me about how that went <laughs> and what it was, what all was involved there. And he said, to, I'll never forget it. He said, I'm really worried about the way they're rushing this into production. I'm not confident of the way they're doing their business at NASA. And if they're not careful, one of these days, they're going to get somebody killed up there. Yeah. Yeah, I never forgot that several somebodies have been killed up there and they were somebody as this world goes. And yet here we are. There's this irresistible and you would be able to frame it better than me, George. There is this irresistible impulse to reach beyond the bounds of Earth to see what and who is out there because the urge to explore appears to be universal. Well, I think it's I think it's built into the human species, actually. Uh, I have a friend of a late friend of mine was was a NASA engineer, and he was involved in the space shuttle program and, and developing the tiles uh, that went underneath to protect it. And, um, you know, we we were very fortunate because we have really a lot of talented people at NASA and JPL. And with all of these really brilliant, great minds uh, working, uh, we still have a very large element of risk in all of this because you cannot get it. You cannot get into a, even a passenger jet uh, without some measure of risk. Uh, if you get into a fighter jet, there's another measure of risk. Uh, if you get into a spacecraft, it, it keeps going up in terms of risk because it's risky business. And, uh, you know, it's nice to think that we'll be able to go to space as space tourists uh, I think there's a big difference between being a space tourist and being an astronaut. Um, and uh, I think astronauts are the workers and space tourists are tourists. 
you know. Uh, I mean, if you sit in a sit in a, a capsule and you go up and it's being controlled by a computer and all you're doing is enjoying the view, um, you know, I'm j I just don't think you should, I don't think NASA should be giving you astronaut wings because you haven't done anything. I, uh, you sat still until you couldn't. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's well said, George. And by the way, you know, Suzanne and I shop for TVs, refrigerators, dishwashers, what have you. What I tell these guys is, yeah, it's nice to be among the first, but a ticket right now costs $28 million. You know, the price will come down. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think Branson's- Give it a little price, time. You know, I think Branson's uh, advanced pre-orders and all that for reservations was like a quarter million dollars. Uh, but oh, wow. there, there, yeah, right, right. But there will come a point where it will be uh, maybe in our lifetime, uh, what's left, uh, there may be a point where the prices will come down and people will consider it somewhat, if not commonplace, then within reason. Uh, you know, I just think it'd be a wonderful thing if Ray Bradbury had, had been alive so he could see this, or Robert Heinlein or some of these first uh, generation science fiction writers that were writing in the, in the 40s. Uh, could see that we actually did this and it did, and it's private industry that funded this as opposed to the government. So that really, it really does open the door. It does open the door. Now I get to say this to our favorite pop culture maven. There are two things I know of that Ray Bradbury and Gene Roddenberry had in common. One was their passion for the presentation of science fiction in literature in the one case, uh, on the other on television. And the second thing they had in common, which startled me when I discovered this, neither one of those gentlemen had the foggiest bit of faith in UFOs or in the possibility of extraterrestrials having visited the Earth. Both of them were adamant to the point of expressing their views angrily. No, this is science fiction. It's not real. It's not possible. Don't people understand? No. Well, there's first, there's something that, that almost every journalist now makes a mistake of saying, and that is that when they see something that seems impossible, they say it's science fiction. That's not science fiction, that's fantasy, okay? That's Harry Potter time with a wand. Science fiction, to people that read it and know it, is extrapolation. It's taking all the current data and then projecting what it might be 10, 20, 30, 50 years from now. And so it's not guesswork, it's, it's grounded in some fairly rigorous principles about where we're at now and where we're going to go. And so it's not fantasy. So when they say, well, you know, we got into space and it's just, you know, this, that, and the other, well, it's science, science fiction is, is, it's not prophecy. You know, it is basically extrapolation. It's not, and it's not fantasy. So that's a very important distinction. I'm glad you said that. It is a very important distinction. I'm going to switch gears here and ask you about something that happened to you or perhaps didn't happen to you when you wanted it to. You'll tell the story. You wrote a book about Donald Trump. You had your own take on the man. And this was back when and what happened to that project? Well, it was funny because I had been reading about Trump for many years and I had a basically a library about the guy. And he was an he's an interesting figure. And that was enough for me to want to, to, to know more about him. But the odd thing was that when I started seeing reviews of books and some interviews and whatnot, something just didn't sound right to me. 
there seemed to be a lot of things that were said that were inconsistent or things that seemed to be covered over pretty well. And so I thought, well, I'll do a quote book, but I'll give the guy the benefit of the doubt. And so uh, when we saw him coming down the escalator uh, to announce his candidacy, uh, of course, nobody took him seriously. Everybody thought, well, you know, this is this is hilarious. Donald Trump, you know, he's going he's running for president and nobody, nobody expected him to win. And um, and like Pat Paulson did and his yeah, mother's and, brothers. Right. And, and you know, it, they under, underestimated the, the man. Uh, they also underestimated what was going on in the country with this subcurrent of of dissatisfaction. And uh, and then when he then when he won, people were just a lot of people were shocked. I mean, it was you know the polls ran late in the night, and and uh, people woke up in the morning. And they said, well, you know, I'm sure Hillary is going to be the next president. And in fact, her she she had been uh, doing her pre-celebration stuff and getting the champagne out. You know, that was a that was a pretty much the norm. Everybody felt that was going to happen. And then uh, you know Trump won and. The book actually uh, was submitted in October, uh, a month you know, or a few months after he announced his candidacy. And um, for whatever reasons, the publisher uh, delayed it until the spring, by which time everybody else already had books out. So I think timing is really critical if you do a book, especially on a topical subject like this, which is time sensitive. Uh, timing is everything. So uh, the book really didn't meet my publisher's expectations, uh, but I would have loved to have had a time machine to be able to go back and see what might have happened if we had gotten it out uh, in the fall that he had announced his candidacy. And, this and, is and the I, publishing world. I don't world. recall so many books being written about a president as I do the books that have been written about Donald Trump. Now, maybe Maybe that John F. Kennedy, but not as fast as all these books have come out well, during his presidency and right after. Yeah, well, and of course, pres uh, Kennedy's presidency was cut short. Uh, right. Stephen King did a wonderful novel about that, uh, speculating what would have happened or what might have happened if somebody went back in time and prevented the assassination. King is really good at that. He's got such a such a powerful imagination. Uh, but I think that because Trump is Trump, uh, we are going to see more books about him. And uh, I don't think a lot of them are going to be very complimentary. Um, and, um, you know, it, history is going to have to judge where his place is in terms of the pantheon of presidents. It's a, it's a little too early to make that judgment, but uh, the fact is that the public has spoken. Let me bring up something I didn't even think about until I heard you talking during this interview, George. Now you've really got me thinking about publishing movies and how this sparks the popular imagination and then leads to a fascination with a given subject, even though these subjects can be addressed in a public way within a fairly short time frame. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Now, remember, I'm a baby boomer. I was... Oh, my... I was so fortunate when I went with uh, a, a buddy of mine who was a fraternity brother there. This is back in like late 1973, early 1974. I'd have to go look up the date there. But we went to Grauman's Chinese Theater. 
And I went with my fraternity buddy and there were a couple of sorority sisters. We were all friends. So we went to see the exorcist <laughs> and we were driving from Orange County into LA there. And I thought, Oh man, there's going to be such a line, you know, and there's, there's like a midnight showing or whatever it was afterwards. So we're going to be waiting with in this line around the block. We got there, the four of us, we went up to the box office, just shrugging like any seats there. And they said, yeah, we have four seats exactly left. So we went into Grauman's Chinese theater and sat fairly close to each other. They weren't four in a row, but we could see each other and four seats. And we watched the exorcist. Now there was the novel, William Peter Blatty's novel, the exorcist sensational. I don't even know how many copies it sold, but it was a bunch. And then came the movie, the stunning movie, the special effects for that era are just incredible. In my opinion, scared the hell out of me. And I do mean that pun intentionally. And there was a whole subject about the ancient Catholic rite of exorcism and demonic possession. Is it real? Could it be? People were so frightened. I looked into a bowl of fruit in my living room and saw the face of the devil. And I said, okay, that's enough. I've got to start getting rational about this subject pretty quick here. I actually did that. And I'm going, this is freaking me out, man. And then a short time later in pop culture terms, in 1975, Nobody wanted to go into the water because of Jaws yeah. movie, a big, huge blockbuster bestseller, Peter Benchley's wonderful book. And then it became Jaws, the movie, courtesy of Steven right. Spielberg and some wonderful actors and, and crew. Again, special effects to die for. <laughs> unbelievable. And some did in that movie. Well, I have to say this. I was I was um, a young lieutenant. And going to the field artillery school, and, we, and and I went out with a couple of Marines. We all got together to see Jaws. So we we're sitting behind this young girl. She must have been like a teenager, a few years younger than us. And the scene where they finally see the dead man in the boat, uh, Ben Gardner, and uh, with his and, head popping you know, out there. Right when that happens, you know she had this large coke in her left hand and thing of popcorn in her right. And when she saw that. Well, the, the popcorn <laughs> went this direction and the drink went that in direction. I thought, you know, that's that's a scary movie. You know? and, and that's relatively safe, my friend. I think I can top you there. And, but, <laughs> I was but, not. I, uh, go ahead and finish the story, then I'll tell my anecdote. Go ahead. But the thing with The Exorcist, and a lot of people have said this, is that the reason it gets under your skin is you think it could actually be real. And if it is real, and if there is such a thing as a demonic possession, then it actually says something positive, which is if you, if there's any proof of demons, then certainly and surely and hopefully there's proof of angels. There's proof of an afterlife. Um, so that to me is an interesting subject uh, for further study because there's been so many cases of demonic possession when there's phenomena that uh, you can't explain, it just doesn't make sense. So it has to come from somewhere. But if it doesn't, if it's not internal, you know, if you can't speak a certain language, and suddenly you speak fluent Latin, you have to wonder why. Yes. Now back to Jaws. Okay. I love it that you told that story, George. I love that. 
Okay, here's mine. And now I feel like we're doing the showing off of the tattoos during the <laughs> soliloquy scene about the independence in Jaws. People remember that. one of the great all-time scenes in movie history, in my opinion. But uh, when my buddy went to um, see it, he had a girlfriend, the two, and they were going to go see Jaws together. And we're referencing the Ben Gardner bow where Richard Dreyfuss is down there. He's looking to see if there's any evidence of the shark being in territory. And he's doing this with great trepidation there. And he looks into this hole in the boat to see what happened to Ben Gardner. And Ben Gardner's head pops out of this hole in the boat. In that electrifying moment, instead of popcorn and Coke flying, my buddy's elbow went straight up and into the eye of his girlfriend and Whoa. gave her a gave her a shiner that she'll remember forever. <laughs> and it just so happened she had to go to work the next day as a customer service representative at Disneyland. <laughs> there, so I'm going, oh man, what a date. You won't forget it. <laughs> that is incredible. It, the idea is the imagination and now the technology with CGI, as they call it, is computer-generated imagery. It, it accomplishes things that look like real magic and all you have to do to see repetitive examples of this in a whole developed uh, mature uh, saga is in fact the series of harry potter movies it's so much so that young people have told me it's the greatest thing in their life they'll never forget it and it, it's a mania for them and i said well i got one for you and i understand i've seen these movies and i understand i get it when i was still nine years old the beatles came to america and they performed on the Ed Sullivan show. And when that happened, it was the start of Beatlemania, which had already been going on in England and in other countries, even in Scandinavia and so forth. But then they came to America, which was their goal, because they knew if they made it here, they had made it around the world. And in fact, that was the case. It's wonderful to see something happen that is so momentous that it changes not just millions of lives, but in a sense, the arc of history. And it well, comes many times through pop culture. Yes, yes. And I mean, because pop culture can connect us in a way that some of these other things cannot. Uh, my wife actually saw the Beatles in concert in um, Philadelphia. And she told me something that I hadn't thought of. And that was, she said she couldn't hear any of the music because all the girls were screaming nonstop. And so at some point, you know, later when this phenomenon happened, uh, the Beatles would just pretend to be singing. They thought, why bother to sing when they can't, can't even hear us anyway? But, yes, that um, couldn't hear each other playing, and they were, you mm -hmm. can hear the music, their attempts to play their songs, where uh, Ringo at one point is only hitting the, his beat every other beat because there was no point in trying to mm -hmm. establish the right fills and everything like you would do in a studio because they, his own bandmates couldn't hear him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know, but, but you know, for baby boomers especially, uh, the rock and roll music, the Beatles and all of that. Uh, it's the soundtrack of our lives. And, um, and even now what's, what's interesting is like with Harry Potter, uh, those books were up to 700, 800 pages and it got kids reading again, which I thought was wonderful. I love the movies, but I love the books because I, I think they're more immersive. But uh, I remember going to a public event, Stephen King, uh, John, let's see, uh, John, I can't remember the guy's name. It wasn't Grisham, but Stephen King, J.K. Rowling, and um, the guy. Uh, anyway, so the other guy, the other guy. So, 
so she was so this young fan she must have been in her 20s was showing me her copy of a harry potter novel that she had read and it was literally it was a hardback and it was falling apart and i said geez how many times have you read this and she says well i've lost count um so i love that i, I just love the idea that people will pick up a book and literally become immersed in it in a way that with a movie everything is is out of your imagination it's somebody else's imagination but with a book your imagination is what's going to make that book come real and uh, that's the reason why i just love uh books over movies uh and you know our house is literally filled with with books i wonder now and this is an opportunity we've just got a couple of minutes left here george there, but are you willing to prognosticate a bit about what the next big thing will be that is there uh, that is transferable between media? Something that comes out as a movie then becomes a book, or as often happens, a novel that becomes a movie or a movie franchise. I'm going. What unexplored territory is there, and did Stephen King already get to it? Well. Um... Actually, I think there is, and I'm, I'm not at liberty to discuss it because I'm writing a novel about it. Um, my feeling is that, and there was a recent thing in the news about people having the sense that there's been too many superhero movies. And, mm. and I, I loved comics and I grew up on comics, but you know, I just think that I've had enough of the third version of Spider-Man's origin and things like that. <laughs> yes, Big right. battle scenes, you know, and it's all, it, it looks to me like a big video game. And I think that you have to get back down to the stories and how the people are affected and there's people that you care about. You know, it's hard to relate to say Superman because he's Superman, you know, and, and books and movies have to be relatable, but I've had enough superhero movies. I've had enough of uh, uh, angry aliens um, and, and, and all of that. Um, there are some new interesting twists. What we need now is some new stories that we haven't seen before. Uh, we need more books like that. We need more movies like that. I th hopefully they're coming. I'm okay. going, we will be paying attention, that is for sure. George, we look forward, hopefully in the next month or two, to sitting down with you and doing as was described at the start of this hour, that we can sit down under a palm tree of your choice. We've got plenty of them around here and yeah. to enjoy a drink, maybe a meal and just talk some more pop culture, maybe a little politics and get to know someone that we regard as a friend already. Just one we hadn't met face to face. Exactly. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Florida, you know, Stephen King is now down there um, and he's writing books about Florida a novel set in Florida. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's a good thing. All Stephen right. King wants to write about weird stuff. Florida is the place to go. <laughs> you can find endless stories, I'm quite sure. Florida man. Thank you, George. We look Thank forward you, to number 15 with you. Absolutely. Okay. All right. All right. Talk to you Take soon. Care. Thank you. Thank you, Benny. And All coming right. Up next. Coming up next is the Christine Upchurch show. And later today, American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance, and your guest is Marion Ross. Hey, Mrs. C. That's going to be a great time. Stay tuned to 1150 AM. You have found the right place on the radio. Have a great weekend, everyone.